Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 339 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is It's All in Your Head, an interview with Dr. Susan Trackman. My name is Dr. Christine Arsenault, and you can find my interview on episode 317. You can also find me through my website at limesupport.com. And I'm Richard Johannesson. In today's episode, Dr. Susan Trackman gives us an insider's view of the healthcare system and insurance system and how sometimes it doesn't best serve patients with Lyme disease. This episode will help you feel validated along your journey and also allow you to show some grace to healthcare professionals who have to work within this broken system. Without further ado, we're happy to introduce you to Dr. Susan Trackman and It's All in Your Head. All right. Hello, Dr. Trackman. So happy to have you here today. Well, Dr. Arsenault, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Um, Yeah, so we just wanted to get started by asking you where you live, what you do, and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in Great Neck, um, you know, as I said earlier. So I'm originally from Long Island, um, but I actually don't recall ever having been bitten by a tick as much as ticks are endemic to the island. Um, I didn't live at the beach. You know, I lived on the North Shore and not to say that there weren't, uh, you know, deers who had ticks, but I don't recall ever having been bitten by a tick. And to my knowledge, I've never had Lyme disease. So I now live in Virginia um, where there's plenty of woods and I have a yard that has trees and deer in the neighborhood. And so they're probably carrying deer ticks and my dogs have had Lyme, um, but to my knowledge, I have not. Um, So I am a psychiatrist and I did when I started off in practice, I never thought I'd be treating folks necessarily with Lyme disease, but I did a fellowship in psychosomatic medicine, which is the interplay between, well, people used to call it mind-body, which now I think is so overused, but essentially it's, I see people who have psychiatric conditions along with what you would consider other medical illnesses, which is so arbitrary because if I cut off your head, could you possibly function? Of course not. So the, the, your brain is in your head and your head's connected to your body. So obviously whatever's going on in your brain is going to affect the rest of your body and vice versa. But in the course of my fellowship, I learned, and and since then being in practice for 30 years, Lyme along with many other medical conditions have neuropsychiatric presentations that are often missed. And uh, that is how I became involved in this area. And, uh, I have just written a book, which hasn't been published yet, which includes chapters on infectious disease, such as Lyme disease. I also have a blog on psychology today, where I publish things uh, about the mind-body illness and treatment. Um, So that's how I spend my time. I mean, I'm mostly in a full-time practice, but I also uh, am a medical writer. I also teach medical students and and residents and fellows. And when I'm not doing that, I'm also working as a forensic psychiatrist. So I work with attorneys in legal matters. Okay. Okay. Let's back up a little bit. Um, I want to know a little bit kind of about your childhood and and what what led you to become a psychiatrist? What made you want to work in that field? Well, I mean, when I was a kid, I was going to be, I was going to be Perry Mason. I was going to be an attorney. Um, because okay. I loved watching Perry Mason and I love the way he would solve cases. And of course he'd always come up with the answer at the end. Um, 
but uh, I always also loved animals. And so then I kind of shifted thinking I was going to be a veterinarian uh, because I, I was always interested in how things worked. So I, I like to figure out how things work, even at a young age. Um, I remember asking my mom when I was, oh, I had to be under 10 for chemistry set. And I think she was afraid I was going to like blow up the house. So I did not get a chemistry set, um, but I did get a microscope and slides. And so I did take things from outside and put them on slides and look at them under microscope and thought they were pretty cool and interesting. And um, so when I went to college, I decided that I was going to be go to medical school rather than vet school. Okay. And then once in medical school, I thought for sure I was going to be an OBGYN because I was interested in women's health. And OBGYN is the only clinical rotation that I did not get honors in because it was a really bad experience. And I scratched that one. And then, um, you know, I was always interested, like I said, in how things work and how people work and, and human behavior. And I had some great psychiatry professors when I was in med school. And I thought we saw some of the most interesting patients in the hospital when I did a rotation on what was then called the consultation liaison psychiatry service, where we'd get called to see people in different um, settings within the hospital. Usually they were mystery cases. It's like being a detective. I mean, that, that's kind of mm -hmm. one of the things I like about psychiatry is that, you know, the brain is a great mystery and a lot of illnesses that we see can end up being mysteries. And I actually saw a really cool one yesterday, which I can tell you about later. Um, but it's like being a detective, like a medical detective. I mean, I'm not doing the same thing over and over again, like my friends who are surgeons, who over time they say to me, you know, Sue, it's like laying bricks after a while. You just do the same procedure over and over and over. And my practice is never boring. So I, I find it even at this point, after practicing for so many years, I still find it incredibly interesting and um, it's never boring. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like you find it very interesting specifically to kind of work with the mysterious kind of diseases and be a detective. Was there a turning point in your career where that kind of happened? You mentioned the OBGYN, how that didn't go so well. I don't know if you want to give oh, any more happy. details no, about that. I'd be happy to tell you my favorite OBGYN story because I actually use it in my practice when I tell my patients certain things about why things are the way they are. So mm -hmm. I did, I went to the school at the University of Texas and one of my rotations in obstetrics and gynecology was at St. Joseph's Hospital in Houston, a Catholic hospital. And uh, my first day on service, I was, and I had never done anything in obstetrics and gynecology, it was my first day. So I get called to the operating room and I thought, oh, okay, I guess this is gonna be a delivery. Uh, well, the woman who was delivering was also in the midst of a cardiac arrest because she had something that's never seen except in like one in a thousand people, which is called an amniotic fluid embolism. So basically she was delivering the baby. She was bleeding out. They were sewing her up and pumping her chest to make sure she wouldn't die and the baby wouldn't die. Fortunately, the baby survived as did she. That was my first day. Later wow. that week, I got called to the delivery room by a very sadistic OBGYN resident who said, oh, I want you to come in. I want to see that we just delivered this baby. You need to go over and take a look. And I said, oh, okay. 
go over it's over there like over there in the in the in the bassinet i said yeah, yeah fine so i go over there and it is an anencephalic baby a baby who was born without a brain who was going to die within minutes so mm-hmm. i this this resident took a real dislike to me and for whatever reason and then during surgeries because you also do surgery during obstetrics and gynecology in the midst of surgery, one of the things that they let medical students do is you can pull the retractor until your arms are falling off so that the surgeon can see what they're doing. And they also let you cut the sutures, which are the stitches that are put in. So they hand you the scissors and the surgeon makes the stitches and he makes the knot and he pulls it up. And then the resident goes, cut. It's like, okay, cut the sutures. You cut them too long. Mm-hmm. All right. So like the next surgery, same thing happens, you know, it stitches up, pull it up, makes a knot, hands me the scissors, cut. Okay. Well, if I cut them too long that time, I'm cutting them shorter, cut the sutures, you cut them too short. And it went on like this until literally at the end of my rotation, after whatever it was, eight weeks, and I had suddenly decided there's not a chance I'm going into the specialty. These people are mean. They're awful. I never want to do this. I get called to the, I was on call that night and I got called in for an emergency surgery. Um, and again, it was just me and the resident, a really nice attending physician who was operating on this woman who had a tubal pregnancy, which is a medical emergency because the tubes can explode and the woman can like bleed to death. Mm-hmm. As a surgery, fortunately saves, you know, was able to save the tube, hand me the, the scissors, cut. And I looked at him and I goes, I said, do you want them too long or too short? And the attendant laughed so hard. I swear he almost fell into this poor woman's like abdominal cavity. (laughs) So that's my OBGYN story. And it's true. And I actually do use this in practice so that when my patients are saying to me, that doesn't matter what I do. My boss has always complained. I can do this. It's terrible. I do this. It's terrible. I was like, wait, I have a story for you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, sometimes you just are not going to make someone happy. No matter what you do, even if you do it right, you're just not going to make them happy. So that is why I did not become an OBGYN. But yeah. I do see a lot of OBGYN patients in my practice, which is a lot of fun because I do postpartum disorders. Okay. So okay. I got the best of it without having to do the worst of it. And did you kind of take that as a sign? Like, this is not for me. And then that's oh, when you yeah. kind of started exploring. Like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> no okay. way. Um, so, but I mean, I considered lots of things. I mean, I, I was interested in a lot of things. I mean, I thought about maybe being an anesthesiologist and I thought it was too boring. I thought about being a dermatologist because like, oh, that's fun. You get to sort of sit around and make people look pretty, but it's like, oh my God, how many times can you treat, you know, acne and psoriasis? And this is before it got to be really more of cosmetic dermatology, which probably would have been interesting. So, yeah, but then I found like psychiatry. I mean, this kind of psychiatry is like, this is interesting. I mean, this is never going to be boring. And I got to learn something new all the time because I've got to know internal medicine. I've got to know neurology. I've got to know infectious disease. I've got to know autoimmune disorders. I mean, there's always something new I have to, to learn about. So, mm-hmm. like I said, it's inherently interesting. And I think that as we get older, it's really important to keep our minds active. Otherwise you get stale. So I think that's one of the benefits of doing what I do. Okay. So you had that bad experience with OBG Mm -hmm. and then you kind of started, you know, you were interested in a lot of different things. You like the variety Mm -hmm. with psychiatry. You said you kind of had a couple of good professors. Yeah. Um, 
did you have a good experience with that residency? Very much so. I was at GW. I was at George Washington. And so, um, yeah, I had a very good, I feel like I was extremely well-trained. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, there was a nice mix of people who are sort of the old timers, you know, more analytic trained. And then there were people from the NIH who were the biologists who I tend to lean towards were the biologists. Um, and then there were folks that were the happy medium, but no, I feel like I, I got very good training. I was, I was selected to be chief resident. So I got to not just do clinical work, but do administrative work and basically run an inpatient service. And it was a very good experience. Yeah. I came out of there, I think very well prepared. Okay. Okay. Um, and you mentioned, you know, that you had to know a lot about internal medicine and neurology and infectious disease and all these things. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? It, it seems like in my experience, psychiatrists tend to prescribe psych meds and maybe not it, mm -hmm. be as aware of the infectious disease part. Could you tell me a little bit about how that kind of, you first became aware of that or you know, specifically when it comes to Lyme too, like mm -hmm. how you started to become aware of that and why that was interesting to you? Well, I think one of the reasons that most psychiatrists don't do this is because they're just trained in general psychiatry. Right. Mm. So I went on to do a fellowship in psychosomatic medicine, which specifically deals with all these different medical conditions that can present with psychiatric uh, symptoms. And um, so I don't blame the general psychiatrist for not knowing this stuff because that's not what they're trained in. That probably wasn't their interest. And I think that, you know, if that's your focus, that's fine. Unfortunately, you know, I think folks coming out of psychiatry residency programs now are fairly well trained in, in pharmacology and how to prescribe medication. But sometimes they split like the treatment with either a social worker or a psychologist. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I have patients where I split the treatment where I don't have the expertise, let's say in, in DBT or CBT because I wasn't trained in it. Mm -hmm. But I think that, um, when someone comes to my office, uh, unless it's something really straightforward, like someone's coming in to be evaluated for ADD, which, you know, that's kind of pretty easy to diagnose. If someone's coming in with unexplained symptoms where they've been to multiple other physicians, which is usually the case, and these well-meaning physicians kind of tune into their own specialty. For example, you go see an ENT, they're going to look for something they can fix. I don't blame right. them, right? you go to a dermatologist, they're going to look for something they can fix. But if there's nothing obvious and they've been to multiple physicians, they end up in my office saying, nobody knows what's wrong with me. They told me to go see a psychiatrist because it's all in my head. So my response to that is you're right because your brain is in your head and, and we have to just figure out what's going on with your brain that either is causing these things or these things are causing your brain to act that way. So we have to think broadly, right? So if you think broadly, I mean, I think more like an internist, really. I mean, you think broadly and then you kind of narrow your scope as you rule out things that it's not. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I can give you an example if you'd like from yes. actually yesterday. So <clears throat> the person I saw yesterday is the husband of someone I've seen for years. And I treated her for postpartum disorder like 20 something years ago when her first child was born. And I continue to see her. She's a lovely person. She's doing really well. She's now like a professor of geology, I think at one of the local universities. Anyway, uh, last time I saw her, she told me what was going on with her husband, who I had met previously, who again, super nice guy, very high up in one of the big consulting firms locally. And, um, 
in the past four years developed this really strange change in his speech pattern to the point where he started slurring his speech and people thought he was drunk all the time, which of course he's not because he hardly ever drinks. Um, and so they of course thought the worst. I mean, did he have a stroke? You know, does he have a brain tumor, whatever. And naturally the kind of things you would think about. And then he called me up and he said, look, I mean, they don't really know what's going on with me. Is there a chance you would have a look? And I'm like, yeah, I can't promise anything, but of course I'm happy to see you. So I saw him yesterday. Um, and of course, the first thought was, you know, is it because you're under stress that all these things are happening? The answer is no. You don't develop slurred speech, very profound slurred speech and nasal speech where I know what he used to sound like. That's not him. Mm -hmm. And sensory changes in your oro, um, in your, you know, the area of your mouth and difficulty process swallowing certain foods, not all foods. So it's not what used to be called old fashioned term called globus hystericus where people would imagine they couldn't swallow. That's not it. So that's when you sort of put on your thinking cap and think broadly, like, what is it? Well, we know what it's not, right? So we know, for example, it's not a brain tumor because he's had an MRI. We know it's not Parkinson's, which is one possibility because he had a, spe a specific kind of CAT scan, which looks at the area in your brain that's rich in what's what are called dopamine receptors, which are the ones mm -hmm. that get affected in Parkinson's. His are perfectly normal, so it's not Parkinson's. His mother had supranuclear palsy, which is a form of dementia. He does not have that based upon his scans. My next thought was he probably has myasthenia gravis, which is an autoimmune disorder um, and can definitely present in, in, in your 50s, which he is. Usually gets worse when you're fatigued which happens with him um, and can present initially with speech and um, swallowing issues. Well, guess what? A really smart neurologist had already ruled that out because they went for specialized testing at GW. Okay, so what else could it be? I still don't know for sure, but I think I know what it is. And the reason I think I know what it is is he was infected with a tick years ago. Mm. He grew up on Long Island. So he was infected with it. He remembers seeing the bullseye lesion. He was never treated for it. Then when he was in college, for whatever reason, his right knee blew up and um, they couldn't think he hadn't injured himself. It was only his right knee, no other joints. Very smart rheumatologist tapped the knee and it turns out it was positive for uh, the, uh, the tick uh, spirochete. Mm -hmm. So, um, and they treated him. They treated him for, uh, for Lyme. So he didn't, at that point, he didn't have the aches or the, um, you know, the myalgias or anything else. He had had that much earlier on as you do when you've just been infected. So um, they treated him. And not surprisingly, the antibiotic didn't really work. And the reason the antibiotic didn't work is because he now has a chronic form of it because it was never treated adequately. So he's got the residual arthritis. Mm -hmm. But then when they put him on, um, you know, prednisone, which is an anti-inflammatory, his knee got better. Interestingly, he was later diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, which is an autoimmune disorder. So that doesn't account for his nasal voice and swallowing issue. However, I think it's very possible, and I don't know this for sure, because I sent him to get the testing done. He was either reinfected with the Lyme spirochete um, or 
this is one of the residuals in his neuro, uh, neurological system, because as you know, it can sort of find its way to your, neuro your neurological system even years later. And mm -hmm. the classic example of that is Amy Tan, who you may be familiar with her story. Yeah. 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 Um, are you, are you familiar with her story as well? I am. Okay. So we all know and about I can't, Amy. And I can't wait to join the conversation, but this is going so well that I yeah. wanted to. No, Amy Tan, you know, just for your, your listeners, I mean, Amy Tan, as you know, is a brilliant, you know, writer, wrote one of my favorite books, The Joy Luck Club. And um, years ago, uh, attended a friend's uh, child, I think's wedding up in upstate New York. And uh, the day after she found what she thought was just like a funky kind of mark on her, I can't remember if it was her leg. There's and she didn't, make, she didn't make much of it. I mean, she kind of thought it was like a, a spider bite. Um, however, in the week or so after that, she developed your classic kind of myalgias, you know, aches and pains, fatigue, didn't really understand why, went to see her doctor. They didn't make much of it. Um, she said, you know, I think I might have gotten the spider bite. And he says, I wouldn't worry about it. Could it be something else? No. Okay. So anyway, she was not treated. Then years later, she developed other symptoms to the point where she had to be hospitalized because her blood pressure had dropped so low, they were concerned she was going to die. So they hospitalized her, did a complete workup, did an MRI. MRI cl clearly showed she had lesions in her brain. And she said, well, what is that? And her doctor said to her, these are normal uh, changes with aging, except that she was in her 40s at the time, right? So that was nonsense. And Unfortunately, she went on to develop other sequelae because she wasn't treated. So she developed heart issues. She developed arthritis. She got to the point where it, when it did become neurological, she had a seizure. And then she started hallucinating that her poodles were talking to her. And eventually she did her own homework, found a really good doctor in San Francisco where she lives, who told she told them the story. And he's like, okay, we're going to test for this. The first test came back negative, the ELISA test, which as you know, is nonspecific. But then he did a Western blot. Sure enough, it was positive and she was treated. So some things went away. However, she had been sick for so long that the residuals are not going to go away. She has severe arthritis. Fortunately, mm. she can think well enough that she continues to write books. Um, but there is a fascinating YouTube video. If any of your listeners want to see it, look up, you know, Amy Tan, you know, Lyme disease video. It's brilliant. I mean, the way she describes everything. Nice. So, nice. so let me let me join the conversation because there are many things that yeah. that are that are running through my head. So let me ask you one mm -hmm. question first, as a fellow Long Islander, at okay. least you, during your childhood. Um, what would your reaction be if I argued to you that you were likely bitten by a tick, you are likely harboring the Lyme bacteria, and you have just been um, healthy enough to manage that as part of your microbiome, and that's why you you are describing yourself as someone who. Uh, does not have Lyme disease. As far as I know, I don't. Well, meaning you don't have a presentation, but do you, do you think it's possible that as part of your microbiome, you may be harboring the bacteria and your, and your, and your immune system is just managing it so that it's not, not manifesting? I mean, I suppose anything's possible, but given the fact that I haven't lived there for 30 something years um, and I didn't live at the beach, although certainly I could have been bitten any time, um, you know, I'd like to say my immune system's quite healthy. I mean, knock on wood, I still haven't gotten COVID and I know I've been exposed to it. So who knows? I mean, I can't say never. 
So there, there are some doctors such as Bill Rawls, who's uh, one of my one of my favorite Lyme authors, who argues that if you tested 90, he said, if you tested 100% of the people on Long Island, 90% of them would test positive for Lyme disease, even though they would not be symptomatic. And his argument is because it's so endemic here and that we mm -hmm. have so much contact with Lyme disease that the reason people are getting sick mm -hmm. is either one of two things. Either they have immune dysfunction and, and ultimately the, the disease can become chronic or um, in some cases where somebody's bitten by multiple ticks or they're being bitten by a tick at, at an acute phase and they're living in a high mold environment, then they could become chronically ill. But in most cases, he would argue that in a place like Long Island, um, the place of your childhood, almost everyone has certainly been bitten by ticks and almost everyone is harboring the, the microbe, but because it is not a highly viral microbe, if you, uh, and, and his argument is, humans have been getting bitten by ticks since they were humans. It is something that our immune system has come in contact with forever. It's actually immune dysfunction that's resulting in the chronic illness and not necessarily come in contact with the, with the bacteria. So what, what is your reaction to that? Well, you said a lot of things, um, right? So as I said, I, I can't swear that I was never bitten by a tick. What I said is to my knowledge, I've never been bitten by a tick. And to my knowledge, I don't have Lyme disease. Now, could somebody prove me wrong? I suppose they could. I mean, if they did, drew my blood, I might suppose that I, I would probably have antibodies if I've had it in the past. Um, I don't think I have active disease, but I certainly I could have antibodies because uh, once you've been infected, your antibodies are positive forever, which my dogs will always be positive no matter what. Um, the second part of what you said was, is it, what was the second part? Cause you well, said a you, lot of things. You believe that, you know, and part of the reason I'm exploring this with you is you gave us the example of the patient that you began to treat recently yeah. who wasn't, who was infected, who was bitten at one point, And now much later in life, he's beginning to, um, demonstrate or exhibit, um, chronic symptoms. Right. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I think that's something, I think that's important for certainly medical professionals, but I think for all of us to be aware of, especially, well, I think for everyone, right. Because there, you know, one of the misnomers that I think a lot of us walk around with is that if we're not an outdoorsy person or we don't spend time on the beach, that we're not going to come in contact with, with, uh, uh, with ticks. And as it turns out, 80% of the people who suffer from Lyme disease, uh, are actually bitten by a tick in their own backyard. Uh, in many cases, especially if you have companion animals, you're going to come in contact with with ticks, even though you're not outside, because your companion animals are going to be bringing them in, and you're going to come in contact with. Oh, them. listen, so, I've taken them off my dogs, so I know I've come in contact with them. Right. So, so I think one of the things that's important for us to understand, especially when we have these situations where we're sick and we're going from doctor to doctor to doctor, and we cannot get diagnosed, and I, I do want to bookmark that for a second and come back to it uh, with you, mm -hmm. um, but. You know, it seems to me that it's important for folks to understand that just like the patient you are now treating, um, you know, he has been he has been harboring this uh, bacteria or this, you know, again, we'll, we'll talk about the definition of Lyme disease in a minute, but he's been harboring all this for a long time. Now, now he's in his 50s and now he's exhibiting these these symptoms that are hard to connect yeah. And unless you get back to understanding that he did grow up in a tick endemic community, he was bitten by a tick and his body had the capacity to manage this until something became immune disruptive. And it's very likely the fact that he has an autoimmune disorder and is on a, a biologic. So yes, I agree with you. Interestingly, he I said, did you raise this as a possibility with your neurologist? And he said, yeah, but he didn't make much of it. I think it's still a possibility.
Yeah, well, I, and, and that doesn't surprise me. Certainly based on our, you know, 370 interviews on this podcast, we've had we've had very, very similar stories told us. And he's a good neurologist. I like I know yeah. him. I think he's very good. Well, one of the things that you brought up and 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 one of the things that I, I'm I'm fascinated about with, you know, you are, you know, you're you you have this sort of broad set of interests, you have this very broad training, you have um a, a great deal of experience, which has brought you to the place where we are together, which is discussing Lyme disease. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the challenges that we have, and there are many challenges in our medical system, which I'd like to address some of with you, but one of the challenges that we have in our medical system is we, you know, we become a system of specialists, right? Yes. And because we have so many specialists, as you had described it, everyone's yeah. looking at it through their prism. And yep. because everybody's looking at it, this through their prism, they have the they have difficulties now connecting all the broad sy sy symptoms that so many of us are able to diagnose or, you know, um, or, or identify as Lyme disease. But because we don't have a system that rewards people like you who are trained broadly, who have broad sets of interests, so now you are, of course, the kind of person that would be very good at diagnosing Lyme disease. We have a system that is really just sort of a system of specialists would make it almost impossible to tie together all these broad sy symptoms that are necessary for you to define a multi-system infectious disease. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that I think specialists see patients through the lens of what they can fix because I, generally people go to medical school because they want to be helpful, right? Of course. I mean, I guess they want to make a living too, but but they want to, in general, you want to be helpful. So, you know, and I think people try to be helpful in terms of what they know. So um, I can listen to someone's heart and hear a murmur, but I'm not nearly as good as listening to it as a cardiologist because that's all they do. So a cardiologist is going to look for a reason uh, in terms of your uh, cardiovascular system that you're exhibiting symptoms, not because they're bad doctors, but that's what they zero in on. Much as, you know, an infectious disease doc is going to be work you up the wazoo, you know, blood, urine, saliva, you know, feces, everything, because that's what they do, right? Um, and a lot of psychiatrists and, and you know, again, well-meaning psychiatrists are going to listen to someone like the guy I saw uh, yesterday and say, huh, I wonder if it's because you're stressed because, you know, your mom died a year and a half ago. You just got promoted to partner. You know, your wife is working on her dissertation. And I think there's a lot of and well-meaning who would look at it that way. Doesn't mean they're bad doctors. It just means that if you don't consider alternatives, I believe that you will miss things. And I used to sort of um, I used to examine the fellows before they took the um, psychiatry boards because when I was getting my boards, we used to have to take a written and an oral board exam. We were like one of the only specialties that also had to do an oral exam in front of like three examiners, and you never knew who the patient was that was coming through the door or what was going on with them. So we used to work with, when I was in attending, I would work with the, um, the postgraduate fellows to prep them for the board exam. So I you know, pick a random patient they've never met before. They come in, they examine the patient. They uh, have to present to me the differential diagnosis, what they would do, blah, blah, blah. One of the things that I would always say to them is if you walk into that exam, and you tell the examiner that you know what the diagnosis is, you will fail. Even if you're right, you will fail because they wanna see how your mind thinks and how you can come to a conclusion based on the facts. It's kind of like being a lawyer, right? You have a set of facts and based on the facts, you come up with hypotheses and then you rule out the ones that are less likely 
and you rule in the ones that are more likely and hopefully the facts support your, your final conclusion. So I think that, and again, I still, when I teach medical students and residents, I'll tell them the same thing. You may think you know the answer, good for you. You're probably right, but don't forget to think about other possibilities because if you don't do that, you'll miss it. And it's only because I was trained by really good people at the University of Texas. I remember one of my attendings and actually he was an MD JD. He was a lawyer before he went to med school. And I remember him saying to me, Dr. Trackman, and I wasn't a doctor yet, he was being nice. He goes, Dr. Trackman, if you listen to your patient, they will give you the answer. And he's right. But I have the luxury of sitting with someone, a new patient for an hour, because I, I can do that in my practice. A busy internist, no way. You know, they're going to run through them unless they're in a concierge VIP practice. They're going to see four patients, maybe more an hour. Same thing with a busy family doc. Um, who do you think sees these cases of Lyme, which are missed? Primary care doctors. They don't have the time to sit with them like I do. So you've, you've just you've just moved us right into the next area of questions I want to explore with you, which is... Yeah, I was like just reading your mind. You it's are. Like, well, I, it's I like mean, I knew what you were thinking. What a surprise that a psychiatrist a would know what I'm thinking and know where... It's amazing, we're right? We're all mind readers. Because I want to know, uh, Dr. Chuckman, how, how do you feel about um, the thought that we really just have a system that's designed to treat acute illnesses, not chronic illnesses? And because we've decided as a matter of public policy, that we want to make the medical system available to everyone. And because we want to make the system available to everyone, we've made some choices. At least we have, as a matter of policy, we've made choices. And that is, we're only going to treat everyone for acute illnesses, and we're not going to give docs like you the opportunity to have the time or the focus that's necessary to um, diagnose and treat complex chronic illnesses. I think that... Um... No, I, I actually, I think that there are plenty of, of, of primary care docs that do treat people with complex uh, chronic illness. Ex typical examples are, you know, the bread and butter of primary care, you know, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. In most cases, those are going to be chronic, right? Um, they don't, have, do they have enough time to do it? probably not in our current healthcare system, because if they're, like I said, if they're in a big practice and they got to see four people an hour, they're going to do the best they can within that period of time. Let's say with that for a second. So, so you're, what you're, you're, yeah, yes, they may be treating people who have these complex illnesses, but are they given the time to get to the root cause that's necessary in order to be able to properly treat a chronic illness, even if they're getting to a proper diagnosis when they have 15 minutes with someone uh, mm -hmm. who has a chronic disease? I mean, it, you know, I, I, I just, I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect but even the most experienced doctor, when given 15 minutes with a patient, is going right. to be able to properly diagnose the root cause of a chronic illness. <clears throat> I have to agree with you. And I think that's why a lot of primary care doctors have now gone into what are called VIP or concierge practices, where you pay a fee on an annual basis and you can see your doctor anytime you're sick. And they spend, I mean, I have a doctor like that because my last doctor who I loved um, moved to Richmond and I was like, I'm not looking for another doctor who's going to retire or leave. So I just, and I really like my internist. She gives me more time than I need. Um, sometimes I'm looking at my watch and going, you know, Eileen, I got to go. I mean, she's like, you know, two hours for an annual physical. I, like, I don't need two hours, but she's like, no, come on. We got to do this. We got to do this. But not everybody can afford that. Right. So yeah, in some ways is the system <coughs> ineffective. 
I think people do the best they can. And I think people sure. who go into primary care, you know, they don't go into primary care to get rich. For sure. They uh and and they are the they are the backbone of, of, of medical care because who do you go to when you're sick? You don't go to your specialist. So so let's stay with that for another second because see, look, I'm not a doctor basher. I, I love doctors, I think they're wonderful people. And like you argued earlier, I think people become doctors not just because they want to earn a living, and I, there's nothing wrong with that. They become doctors because they want to help people, and because they have a heart for helping people, they become doctors, right? That's who they are, but unfortunately, they're now working in a system that doesn't allow them to have enough sleep, doesn't allow them to have you know the kind of free time that they need if they want to do the work that they need. And they are not given the time that they need and want to have in order to be able to treat patients. And that's a formula for burnout, right? Isn't that what's happening in the medical system? Doctors are burning out and they're burning yeah. out because they can't do what it is that their heart is calling them to do, which is to treat patients the way they need to be treated. Yeah, but you know what? I think that, that you, we have to sort of... Um it's not so much policy. You have to look at the influence of insurance companies because sure. in most of these big primary care practices, I mean, basically how are they getting paid? They're getting paid through insurance companies and it's the insurance companies that are making these, um, you know, oftentimes ill-advised decision to deny a procedure or a medication. And um, it's very hard for a primary care doc to make a living. I mean, they, they got to bust their butts. And uh, mostly it's because insurance reimbursement for some of these is, is just pathetic. So, but I'm old enough to remember that when the system was different, right? I, mm -hmm. I grew up I grew up in a community where we had a family doctor, Dr. Nadell, who would spend plenty of time with us and knew me really well. So anytime I walked into his office, all the way in the time, until the time I graduated from college, he knew me, he knew me my entire life. He was able to put anything I brought to him into a context that would allow him to give me a very healthy diagnosis, right? But then, then we then we became a managed care system, right? And this well, was a policy decision. Yeah. And it was a policy decision made during Bill Clinton's administration when they made the decision that we were going to go to a managed care system, right? That's what happened. It was a policy decision. And now all these insurance companies now became the people who are managing medical practices and determining whether or not you were going to get paid or not going to get paid. So what that's made our system into is a system where we have more access for more people, but the amount of time that any one of us has in the system is limited. So what we have to do when we have a chronic disease like Lyme disease, if we have the resources is we have to step out of the system. We have to go somewhere else and we have to pay for the care ourselves because mm -hmm. the acute care system that we have is not able to provide us with the care that we need. Tell me why I'm wrong. I'm not suggesting that you're wrong. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you're wrong. I mean, I, I really wish the system was different and that reimbursement to primary care doctors was better and that they had the opportunity to spend more time with their patients. Because truthfully, if you ask them, they would tell you they wish they could. They don't like seeing Absolutely. people in 15 minutes, right? They don't like having to see more and more patients so they can like, you know, bill so they can make a living and, and pay, you know, their office rent and then their malpractice insurance. I'm not suggesting you're wrong. The system is broken. The system is failing. And it's to the point, uh -huh. at least in the Lyme community, where uh, we, we, we interviewed Phyllis Bedford from the Lyme Life Foundation, brilliant woman who's doing unbelievably uh, great work. And what she calls Lyme disease is the supermarket disease. And she calls it the supermarket disease because more people get diagnosed in the supermarket when they bump into a family member or a friend who has a family member or friend with Lyme disease and they notice the identity of symptoms. And then they run back to their primary care physician with this question, hey, do I have Lyme disease? Can you test me? And they get diagnosed that way faster than they do by going to their primary care physician who has 
15 minutes to spend with them when they're dealing with a chronic illness, right? So we've gotten to the point where we can't get a diagnosis from the from the primary care docs, which most of us come in contact with when we when we have Lyme disease, because we have a policy, a set of policy decisions that have created an acute care system that limit our ability to get care. That's where we are. Now, there are some on this podcast who have argued, well, we need to move to a system a socialized medicine system, right? And they're arguing that we need more, so we need more controls and we need more access to for more people to the system. So we've asked that question to people who have Lyme disease and who are living in socialized medicine uh, countries like Canada, Canada, the uh-huh. UK, and yeah. Israel. Israel, by the way, has the top um, socialized medical system in the world, but at least most consider it to be the top system. And every one of the people we've interviewed, including a, 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 um, a woman from Israel recently, said that they have to step out of the system in order to be treated, diagnosed and treated for Lyme disease because the system doesn't work. So as we slide closer and closer to a socialized medical system, it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better because we're not giving doctors the resources that they need in order to be able to do what their heart is calling them to do, which is to diagnose and treat people with chronic illnesses the way they need to be treated. Uh, maybe yeah. you should maybe you should offer up some suggestions to the people who make the policies. I, well, I, I certainly certainly have a lot of thoughts about that. So now let's talk about the next piece of this, right? Because one of the things yeah. we here at Sick Boot Camp. And, I, and, and I'm really interested in this, you know, from, from the standpoint of, of, of a psychiatrist. Yeah. Is we heard Sick Boot Camp when we're asked for steps. The first thing we, we say to folks when they're newly diagnosed with Lyme disease is you have to learn the language of Lyme. You have to be able to communicate with people in the community. And there is, there is tribal language that you have to understand. You have to become bilingual. Second thing we talk to people about is making sure that they become enmeshed in the community, begin to speak with other people and follow other people who are on the journey. And the next thing we say is you have to build your team, right? And you have to have a good doctor who is a medical doctor, but you also need a mental health professional because you have to be on the dual journey. And part of the reason why you have to be on a dual journey and have somebody who's treating you physiologically as well as somebody who's treating you emotionally um, is, again, maybe you'd be the perfect ment- uh, you know, meshing of those two, but, uh, but we argue that we should have, you should have the, 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 the dual care system because there's so much trauma that comes along with this disease, right? Um, and, 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 and there's so much invalidation that comes along with the disease that you're necessarily going to suffer from mental health issues because of the invalidating approach that the system takes. For example, when Dr. Brian Fallon did his study and diagnosis of children, the average child has to see seven medical professional before he, she, or they are diagnosed with Lyme disease, right? So it's a very difficult process and it's a really traumatic process and people are, are really traumatized by the time they get to a place where they're being diagnosed. So you need to be treated both physiologically and emotionally. Tell me tell me if you agree with me that, that there really needs to be these, this dual level of care, both physiological and, and emotional care uh, after you get diagnosed or you're not, or you're gonna really have a much longer journey to healing if you don't have the, the mental element of this um, managed as well. I think, like I said, that that to say it's, you know, mental versus physical is very arbitrary uh, because, like I said before, I mean, obviously your brain is connected to the rest of your body and vice versa. I think that what you're describing, at least what I've seen in my practice, it's it's not unique to folks with Lyme disease. It's it's unique. It, it, it's pervasive in patients who have um, 
symptoms that are not perhaps readily uh, either understandable or they seem somewhat uh, in contrast to what shows up on lab tests or, or, um, or CAT scans, you know, much like my patient who I saw the other day. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> in, in that way, I can totally agree with you that people sort of feel, you know, marginalized and diminished and, um, you know, are feeling as though uh, nobody really understands what they're saying. So, you know, perhaps, and, and listen, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing mental health professional along with someone who's treating your Lyme disease, trust me, uh, particularly because, you know, Lyme can cause some psychiatric uh, symptoms such as, um, you know, depression, anxiety. It would be nice that we just had people who were competent to make the diagnosis, right? Um, I, I, I'm pretty good at knowing when to refer someone to get a test. And a lot of times I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong, but a lot of times I'm right. But I'm not going to be the one to prescribe the antibiotics. I'm going to let their primary care doctor do it. So I kind of stay in my lane, although I think I can pretty much, um, what's the word? I think I can sort of uh, step into other areas because I know something about them. Yeah. And I can at least advise other people. For example, if this guy comes back and uh, his test is positive, <clears throat> I probably will call the neurologist and say, you know, what do you think? Now, the question is, what do you do about it, right? So let's just suppose this gentleman, his dysphonia and dysphagia are because he's, he's suffering from, from late stage Lyme disease. I don't know what you would do about it in his case because treating him with antibiotics is not gonna work. Um, not, I, I, probably not. I mean, you could certainly try it, but it's probably not. Late stage, probably it's not gonna work for what he's got. So I don't know what the next step would be, but I will certainly help him find out what the next step would be if, in fact, you know, this is what's causing it. He has a great attitude. I mean, I asked him yesterday, so what's this been like for you? It's been four years and, and nobody seems to know what's wrong with you. And he's got a remarkable attitude. I mean, he's like, this is not the worst thing that could happen to someone. I mean, you know, mom had super nuclear palsy. I don't have that. I don't have Parkinson's. You know, I don't have MS. I don't have a brain tumor. You know, I feel they eventually will come up with an answer, but it's not the worst thing that could happen to someone. So everybody responds to a diagnosis differently, right? For sure. So, so let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about the uh, binary brain uh, and let's talk about the sympathetic and uh, parasympathetic, and parasympathetic um, nervous system and, and, and how that, how that impacts um, someone's healing, right? You, you were saying that your patient has a good attitude. Uh, mm -hmm. And as a result of having a good attitude, it seems like he has a good mindset. Um, in your opinion, how important is it to focus on mindset and mm -hmm. make sure that a patient is not triggered into uh, fight or flight so that they are engaged in, you know, in, in um, I, I guess, a state that will be immunocompromising and more difficult for them to heal? Well, you know, we know that that stress um, uh, is, is not good for us, right? We know that inflammation is not good for us. We know that stress is related to inflammation. So whatever we can do to diminish inflammation is always a positive. And I do take a holistic approach to treating folks like this. So for example, I wanted to know, you know, what his diet was like, because obviously what's going on in your gut biome is going to directly affect your brain because they're directly connected. Um, he started to exercise, which is great because we know that exercise is good for your brain. Whatever is good for your heart is good for your brain and exercise is great, you know, for your mood. And it also improves your um, immune system. 
um, he does Pilates, which is great. Um, he does not meditate, but we've talked about mindfulness. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's the approach that I take with, with anyone with a chronic illness is right. to say, look, I'm not just gonna, in the old days, we used to just sort of dispense medication. You're depressed. Okay. We're going to give you an antidepressant. I can still do that, but that's what one thing that we can do in terms of treating a complex illness, such as depression or anxiety or Lyme disease. Um, you know, particularly when it gets to the point that it has neuropsychiatric manifestations, which doesn't happen immediately, but, but it, eventually it will. So let's talk about that. What, what are the different, what are the different um, psychiatric manifestations? And, um, and actually, before we go, you, you, you said that you're, you did your fellowship in psychosomatic medicine, which I think is just so mm -hmm. cool, right? So I, I always thought psychosomatic was a an emotional presentation of a physiological, I'm sorry, a physiological presentation of an emotional illness. Is that a misnomer? Is there some other description of, of what uh, psychosomatic uh, medicine is? No, I think, you know, you're, you're on target, really, because, you know, what are psych, think, I mean, you break down the word, right? Psycho has to do with the mind, somatic has to do with the body, right? So it's the mind-body connection, which I just hate that because everybody's using this right. mind-body connection nonsense. I mean, it's not nonsense, but it's such an overused term. But all it really means is that, and you're right, I mean, you know, a lot of this, the classic psychosomatic disorders are those that have real physical presentation but they're mediated by what's going on in your brain. Another classic example that occurred this week, patient comes in with a history of unexplained hives. She thought it was due to a reaction to what happened during um, surgery. And I was like, no, it's probably not um, because she'd had surgery before, she'd had the same anesthesia before, she didn't have to take antibiotics after the surgery. But I mean, she retired and she has really bad untreated ADD and she's got a daughter who's single and 34 and wants to get pregnant. So she's in the process of looking for, you know, donors. Oh, by the way, the daughter wants to move into her house with a baby when the baby's born. So it's yes. I mean, that's a classic hives are a classic psychosomatic symptom, right? Um, they are real eruptions. You see them, but they're often made worse by, or they often come out in the midst of a stressful event or when you're under a good deal of stress. I mean, honestly, I broke out in the only case of hives I've ever had, except for once when I had an antibiotic. The only other time I ever broke out in hives was the week I got married, the week before I got married. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I was, I mean, I was that. nervous. I mean, I was anxious, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. but, but yeah. Um, so where, how did this, how did I get to this? Oh, so I was answering your question about psychosomatics. Yes. Does that answer the question? It does. It does. So, okay. so I'd like to explore with you, well, actually, before, before you go further, one of the questions that we, you know, that, that we sadly ask everyone on this podcast, uh, mm -hmm. and, and again, I'm saying it sadly because I do want to explore this with the two of you, uh, because, uh, because, uh, Dr. Arsenault has been very kind to allow me to go off on all kinds of things, but I'm going to pull her back in. Um, and, uh, and I apologize to everybody for my rants, uh, that, um, that, uh, we, we sadly have to ask everyone, how do you define Lyme disease? Uh, and, 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 and first, first I'm going to ask each one of you how to define Lyme disease. I'm going to talk to a little bit about why I find that to be sad. And then I'd like to take that, uh, take that into 
uh, another direction. So Dr. Arsenault, please define Lyme disease for me. Well, I mean, the, the textbook definition would be it's an infection caused by a bacteria, Borrelia. And um, I think like you alluded to earlier, it could be something that's more prevalent than we realize, and it just doesn't present in everybody. So there's definitely that immune system component to it is, you know, is your immune system able to handle the bacteria and clear it, or does it actually present and cause an issue? And not only is it your immune system, but it's also your environment. Do you have other viruses, other bacteria? Are you in a moldy environment? So again, it kind of goes back to that holistic approach on whether it presents or not. And like stress, like Dr. Trackman mentioned, is a big one that drives inflammation, which can make things present. I've talked to a lot of clients who, you know, were bitten by a tick a long time ago and they didn't have any symptoms until they had a big stressful event in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think there's a lot of components that the the textbook definition doesn't cover that, um, you know, a lot of people in the the mainstream medical world aren't as aware of. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Chuckman, um, yeah. were you were you given a definition of Lyme disease in medical school, and have you since changed in your view what what um, what that definition of Lyme disease is? I don't remember honestly if I was presented with a definition of it in uh, in medical school. I'm not even sure I studied it in medical school. Um, I saw lots of other weird stuff because I went to the University of Texas. I mean, we saw uh, Borrelia, which nobody sees because it's it's a disease of cattle. Um, I saw all kinds of was weird. That- you said Borrelia. I'm sorry, not Borrelia, brucellosis. No, brucellosis, which is a disease of cattle. I saw achondroplastic dwarf twins because it was one of the centers for treating that. I mean, I saw really, I never saw a case of chickenpox until I got it myself when I was an intern uh, because I was exposed to immunosuppressed people on the oncology service. So I didn't, I don't, I learned about weird stuff. I mean, I learned about basics, but I don't really remember learning about Lyme disease. Okay. Which I'm surprised because we had a big big infectious disease department. Um, But if you were to ask me what it is now, I think the medical definition is, you know, Lyme disease is an infectious disease that's caused by uh, the bite of a a spirochete known as Borrelia. Bergdorfi. 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 Now, do you accept that as as the definition for Lyme disease or do you think it's something else? No, that's what I think it is. So we interviewed Dr. Alan McDonald. And uh, one of the things that he argued first in an article that he had written for LymeDisease.org and then on our podcast was that we need to be divorced from Lyme disease. And his argument about the reason we need to divorce from the term Lyme disease Mm -hmm. is because there are almost as many definitions of Lyme disease as there are doctors, right? Some doctors are calling it a polymicrobial multisystemic infection. Some people are calling it, you know, an acute disease. Some people are calling it a chronic disease. And, you know, and, and as the two of you are brilliant women um, and, and medical professionals, we're all struggling with the disease, right? And I'm just wondering, you know, from each of you, is there any other disease that has as many definitions as this disease seems to have? And, and you know, and are we, are we properly defining the disease as, you know, Bergdorfer's initial um, you know, uh, description of the disease, or is it truly a polymicrobial infection that is a chronic disease um, as opposed to an acute disease, or is it something else? And and, and please ask the, answer the second piece of this. You know, are there many different definitions of, of other chronic diseases such as diabetes? Well, it depends really who's making, who's defining it, right? And, and 
you know, in response to your question, I mean, you know, Lyme disease is, is not a chronic disease for many people. I mean, for people, some people, it's, it's an acute illness. You treat it, they get better, you never have it again, right? For folks who are not uh, treated until later or who are inadequately treated, for example, or who might have been bitten by more than one tick-borne um, bacteria, it, it may develop into a chronic disease, in, in which case it, it is multisystemic. But, you know, it, it, it very much parallels what used to be the, uh, the quote, the great imitator, which was, you know, syphilis, which is, you know, which is uh, caused by a, a different spirochete, which is very similar, honestly. And that used to be a mystery illness because depending upon when you would present to the physician, your presentation could look totally different. You know, late stage syphilis, you'd be crazy. You'd be psychotic. Right. Right. So, so, but what, but because we have all of these different, you know, the research being done by the entomologist is demonstrating that in most cases, um, in excess of 60% of the cases of ticks that they're, that they're, that they're, uh, they're testing have mm -hmm. more than one microbe in their, in their system. Right. Um, and, and some of the most recently published research demonstrates that you can have actually a tick can have over 200 separate microbes in, in, in its, um, in its system when it's biting you and spitting them into you. Right. So we're yeah. testing for a very small number of, of microbes. It's, it's nine at best when you have a, 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 a comprehensive, um, tick, uh, panel, uh, tick-borne disease panel. Um, but in most cases, people are not even getting a comprehensive tick-borne panel. They're testing for a bacteria. And that's the problem with having, you know, this definitional issue, which is we know when ticks are biting people, they're spitting in multi-germs. Multi in some cases, if we're defining Lyme disease as a single bacteria, and we know that there's a number of different strains of that bacteria that are not being tested either, then we're just testing for one, one bacteria. But if we're, if, we're gonna, if we're gonna understand that there are many different microbes that could be spit into someone, then maybe we should be uh, testing with a, with a broader panel. And there are some people that have Lyme disease, at least in this community, that are not are no longer treating uh, the the traditional Lyme bacteria. They're treating other what we now call co-infections mm -hmm. um, rather than just rather than this just one disease. So, aren't we really making it impossible to diagnose and test and treat when we don't even have uh, a definition that the three of us can agree on? Uh, did you want to answer that one first? I feel like I, I don't want to jump sure. in. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I think it goes like, well, for me as a pharmacist, I don't diagnose anyway, that's out of my scope, mm -hmm. but I find that the diagnosis itself doesn't really matter. So I've never seen somebody that just has Lyme disease and doesn't have any other infections or anything else going on in their life. Mm -hmm. So for me, it goes back to like germ theory versus the terrain theory and how we really need to look at our terrain because there's always going to be germs in our environment. We can't protect ourselves from viruses and bacteria and everything else. So we need to make our body as resilient as possible and focus on what we can control. And we just live in a toxic world. We're exposed to all kinds of chemicals that didn't used to be around. Our food is a lot worse quality than it used to be. We just have gotten a, away from how our ancestors lived. We're, you know, constantly bombarded by information, which our brain is not used to. It's not good for us. Um, we've got, you know, stress that's causing all this information. <coughs> so me. I think it's, it's really about looking at the, ter the right. terrain and, and how the terrain and how we can make our body as resilient as possible 
no matter what comes along, instead of focusing on like the specific bacteria that we're trying to kill. So, so I'm gonna yeah go ahead sorry no please please I, I'm I'm I was just gonna pivot over to you and ask you to uh, I, I think I'm gonna answer it slightly differently uh, in that I think there has been a lot of um, controversy depending upon who comes out with these definitions whether it's the international. Uh, Lyme Disease uh, Society, whether it's the CDC, I think it would be nice if the people, the, the powers that be, so to speak, you know, would get their heads together and come up with, you know, a reasonable protocol for how to go about uh, testing for it adequately. Um, because, you know, it's like one group is going to recommend one thing. The CDC's, I think, guidelines are, are inadequate um, from what I can tell. Um, so on that level, it would be nice if there was more of, uh, and then and there's really just not that money invested in it because it's not a cool disease and it's not sexy and there's not a lot of money to be made by pharmaceutical companies out of treating it. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of research being done into it. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. And, and, and of course, and, and, and almost all of the research that's being done is really focusing on the one bacteria, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's another one of the problems because we are going to define this as a polymicrobial infection. Uh, let, let's just stay with that piece of it, right? Maybe maybe someone like Dr. Um, Dr. McDonald's right. And so I said, so, so how, how are we now gonna redefine this? He said, well, we can have Borreliosis, we can have anaplasmosis, we can have ehrlichiosis. We can, you know, like we'd have this list of, of these infections that are defined by either the bacteria or the virus or the, or the, or the microbe, whatever it is that's causing the illness so that we can properly now treat this after we define what the, what the foundation of the, of the infection is. But when we're just defining it as one bacteria, when it's, when in most cases it's polymicrobial, we're putting ourselves in a very difficult spot, not even getting to the soil yet. I mean, we just, let's look at the seed first. And if we don't even know what kind of seed it is, we certainly know what kind of plant is going to be growing. So how are we going to get to the soil, Dr. Arsenal, when, when we don't even know what the, what, the, what, the, what the seed is? So, you know, we, we, we just have, we have a mess here. I mean, it's just an absolute mess and it's creating trauma. You know, one of the things that I really loved about your story, Dr. Jackman, is, is yeah. that, you know, you went through this traumatic experience as, um, you know, as uh, as a resident, right? When you went through your OBGYN, oh, was it, a, yeah, as a medical you, student, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you went through it, so so that allows you to connect to the people that you're treating in a way that you wouldn't have been able to had you not gone through that traumatic experience. And you do use it in some cases when you're talking to people about some of the challenges they're having at work or some of the challenges that they're having with interpersonal interaction. But even more importantly, you understand the impact that trauma has on you physically and emotionally, and you can help people to work through that so that they can get into a more healthy rest and digest state and their, their biology can be working for them rather than against them, which is getting over to part of what Dr. Arsenal was just talking to us about. Yeah, I mean, you just, you know, back to what you were talking about in terms of it being a polymicrobial you know, disease, it almost doesn't matter what we call it, honestly. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you can call it, you know, voodoo disease. I don't really care. I just think that we need to come up with a better protocol for how to go about making the diagnosis and treating it. I, I really don't care what name it is. I don't really care what the definition is. No, Not to be rude, but I really don't care. No, I, just, I, 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 no I, and I love, your, I, love your, I love your mindset, but the, but the problem is how do we come up with a better way of diagnosing something if we don't even have a definition for it? How can we come up with a better way of treating something if we don't even have a, we don't even have a, a definition for it? That's why I'm saying definitions count and we don't have one then. 
Well, we have a current working definition. I think if you were to ask most infectious disease doctors, they would probably, you know, explain it, I think, in, in a similar fashion. Um, then if you sort of, you know, followed up your question and said, well, you know, isn't it possible that when this person gets bitten by a tick, there's more than one bacteria? And I, I think they'd probably say, yeah. I mean, I, th- I don't think they'd say no. Well, you know, they would say, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we need somebody who who has this detective's mindset like yours and this broad level of training, right? Because generally what we see is mm. if, if, if we don't have doctors who have the kind of training that you have, right? Where you have this very broad spectrum of training, right? Not just because you went to the school you went to, but because you have the mind that you have and you have the experience that you have and you have you have this very broad mindset. But then generally what we start to see is, you know, just sort of regular primary care physicians and specialists within their own fields mm-hmm. are not able to diagnose this disease because they don't look at this broadly enough and they're not trained to look at it broadly enough. So who's diagnosing these diseases? We either have, we have, we have Lyme litter medical doctors and there's, that's a very, rare group. We have people who have broad training like you. We have we have functional medical doctors. And then we, we see naturopathic doctors having more success than, from what we're seeing than traditionally trained allopathic doctors because they seem to have this broader perspective and mindset and training. Um, so I think one of the one of the challenges that we we can you know, we can circle back to is we're not getting diagnosed with this disease because the system doesn't produce enough people like you who have the training and the mindset that allows it to be diagnosed. Well, I mean, I don't think it's just you know, people like me. I mean, I appreciate the compliment, but I mean, I don't think it's, it's just people like me. I think that you know, the other thing that we haven't really touched on is why is it so difficult to diagnose Lyme? And I think I wrote an article about this somewhere, but it's because it depends upon at what stage the person is presenting to a doctor's office, right? Because things are going to look very different. That's why it's called the great imitator, just like just like syphilis was called the great imitator. It depends at what stage you are presenting. If you present too early and they do an ELISA test, it's going to come back negative because you haven't mounted antibodies to it yet, right? And, um, you know, if you go to a doctor's office and, and they think that you have to have had a bullseye lesion in order to have this, well, then they're not going to test for it. The truth is, you know, most people don't have a bullseye lesion. So, um, like I said, if, if you are looking for specifics and the person that you see in front of you who is your patient is not meeting the criteria for all the symptoms you think they need to have in order to make that diagnosis, you're going to look elsewhere. And I can see why. So is it more important for people to understand, not necessarily psychiatrists, because I'm a rarity. I mean, most psychiatrists are not going to see Lyme disease. They're not going to be treating Lyme disease. I don't treat it. I can diagnose it. But most people, psychiatrists are not going to see it. People who are going to see it are primary care doctors and hopefully infectious disease doctors eventually. They just sort of need to know how people will look at various stages of the disease so that they don't just say, oh, no, you don't have a fever. You don't have myalgias. You don't have fatigue. Um, I don't see a lesion. No rashes. Nah, it's probably not that. You have a virus. So, you know what I mean? I do. I do. But, you know, I'm going to have to take issue with your argument that, um, that, you know, psychiatrists are not seeing this. I think psychiatrists are seeing it all the time. I just don't think they're diagnosing it. And one of the reasons why I think psychiatrists are seeing it so often is because, this is this disease, which is the great imitator in many cases is is a disease that people that the doctors believe specialists believe is a psychosomatic disease because 
their tests are not coming back positive for anything. And as a result of that, going back to the title of your blog, it's all in your head. So we're sending you to psychiatrist. So, so almost every one of the people we've interviewed on this podcast at some point either has seen a psychiatrist or has been recommended to see a psychiatrist because the, because the medical doctors that they've treated with have been stumped and haven't been able to come up with a diagnosis. In fact, haven't been able to come up with any test that has been able to, to um, give them direction on what is wrong with them. So they end up going to a psychiatrist's office all the time. Yeah, it's off. It's frequent. Yeah. So, so let's... Um, Let's sort of wind down because you've both been so generous with your time and I will go off on this all night. So thank you so much for being so generous. You're welcome. No, you're welcome. So, so Dr. Jackson, talk to us about, about um, what recommendations you would make to folks um, who are new to Lyme disease. They, they, they receive the new diagnosis of, of chronic Lyme disease. What kinds of things would you recommend that they do so that they have a shorter journey toward, uh, toward remitting their symptoms? Well, I think, again, it depends on at what stage they were diagnosed. If someone was just uh, recently diagnosed and, um, you know, they, they were probably infected within the next, past, you know, month or so, I would recommend that you take the antibiotic because, you know, in, in up to, you know, four to six weeks, you should be feeling better. If you're not feeling better, you certainly have to be your own advocate and, um, you know, follow up. And if you're not getting the answers that you think you need to get, uh, you go elsewhere, Right. Um, I, I strongly recommend that if people are not getting the answers they need from their physician, there's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion. I mean, no one's going to ever blame you for if they do, that's silly, but no one should ever be blaming you to get a second opinion. Um, you, you need to learn to be your own advocate, right. which is really unfortunate because most people don't know how to be their own advocate when it comes to the medical system. Yeah, well, and, and, and we're really not trained to be to be our own advocates in the medical system. In fact, we're told to ignore our feelings and we're, we're supposed to rely on the very highly educated people who are, uh, are supposed to be able to, to take care of these issues for ourselves. And, and, um, and unfortunately, that's just not the case, right? We do have to be our own advocates. We do have to recognize that there are limits in the system. And we do have to recognize that if we don't advocate for ourselves and we don't listen to our bodies, we're probably not going to get better. Um, and, you know, again, just going back to the study that I cited to you before from uh, Dr. Fallon at Columbia University, the average child has to see seven doctors before he, she, or they are diagnosed with Lyme disease. So if you're, if you're, if you're concerned about a second opinion, this is not going to work for you in the system because you better get seven or eight before you get to a place where you're going to get diagnosed, right? So now one of the, one of the things that we always do here at Thick Boot Camp and we have a, and we're blessed with a guest co-host is we allow the guest co-host to ask the final question of the podcast. So Dr. Arsenal, please ask the doctor, Dr. Trackman, the final question of this really cool podcast. Is this like Jeopardy or I get to win if I answer, the, if <laughs> I answer it correctly? Do I get do. the jackpot? Can, can I get the jackpot? If you, if you get the, uh, if you get the question right, you get the, you get a, um, do I get a present? Do I get a prize? You do. You get a virtual hug from me. Oh, and okay. Okay. That's worth, then it's worth it. It is worth it. Okay. Go ahead. Um, Okay, so I'm really interested in the psychosomatic part of it. And my question is like a lot of a lot of patients have been from doctor to doctor and they've basically been belittled and like pulled it's in their head as if they're like denying that they actually have symptoms in their body. So how do you and I understand completely that the head is connected to the body, it is all connected, but right. how do you bridge that with somebody who has basically already maybe had trauma from the medical system and mm. hasn't felt heard? Like, how do you start to get somebody to see that their brain is a part of their disease? Okay. I think it's a fair question. So 
I think the first thing I would do is is tell them, and I often do, look at, yes, it, it is all in your head because your brain is in your head. That's not a bad thing. And then usually what I do is a lot of education. And sometimes it means that I'm like, you know, on drawing pictures and, and show the connections between your brain and different organ systems, depending upon what they're presenting with. Um, and just to sort of, I think when people have information, uh, it's, it's, it's very helpful. It makes them feel more in control. And I think when people feel more in control, they feel less um, demeaned and marginalized. And like I said, I have the luxury of doing that. Not every doctor does. So listen, I mean, I, I do appreciate the positive comments from you guys, but I'm in a different situation in that I have the luxury of time to do that. Most yeah. doctors don't, but this is the way I've set up my practice. Um, but I'm also not obligated to insurance companies because I don't take insurance. So I have an advantage that many doctors don't. And, you know, I just want to be, you know, clear about that. So uh, I think that if I can sort of sit and usually this is what I do, I sit and I educate my patients the same way I would educate medical students and residents and fellows. It's like, you know, this is what's happening. This is why it's happening. It's understandable that you have the symptom. Does that make sense to you? And usually they'll say yes. And then I'll say, look at, I actually have written something about this. Would you like to read something that I've written about this? And they're like, yes. Okay. I'll send you an article that I wrote about this. Maybe that will help make it more understandable. So it's really just, I mean, wouldn't you think for yourselves that if you had something that was unexplained and you wish you could figure it out and someone then sat down with you and said, okay, right. You're not making this up. It's really there. And this is why. Don't you think that would be helpful? Absolutely. So it's not magic. It's not magic. It's just listening and taking the time and taking the time to explain it in ways that are understandable to people who are non-physicians. Listen, I treat doctors. I have a lot of doctors in my practice. I have to do this with them too. Well, but, I, you know, and I think that's a perfect way to end this really cool podcast because, you know, in the end, um, if we're going to be successful in, in uh, working with medical professionals, our, the medical professionals have to respect us. And I think one of the most beautiful things that's become very clear to mm -hmm. us about you, which is why I'm going to give you the virtual hug because no, you didn't get the right answer, is, be, you. is because you respect everyone, especially your patients, right? And because you respect us and because you're willing to partner with us and because you believe that we have the capacity to learn, you're sending us articles, you're giving us opportunities to learn and you're, and you're, and you're, you're engaging with us in the same way that you would when you have your hat on as a professor and you're, and you're training other medical professionals. And that's really, I think, one of the other missing pieces in the, in the medical system. And that is either doctors don't have the time or they don't have the proper training to have the, 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 a healthy partnership relationship with their patients. Unfortunately, they come riding in on the white horse. They get rewarded by us for doing that because that's what we want. We want the pill and we want to get better. And as a result, we don't have someone who's empowering us to take control of our health. But someone like you and hopefully more of your students will be bringing into this world an opportunity for us to be treated um, not only well, but treated as partners and given the opportunity to heal. So again, I can't thank the two of you enough. for oh, Thank you so much. Taking your time, uh, Dr. Arsenault and, and Dr. Trachman, thank you so much for doing the great work that you're both doing. And thank you so much for taking time to share your, your, um, your experiences with our folks on this podcast. Can I share one more thing? Since Please. we're talking about education and giving people free education. Yes. If they go to my website, 
www.susanbtrackman.com. They can take a free quiz that's all about mind-body connection health. And the answer, it's free, totally free. And all the answers have been specific, have been actually written by me. So if you want more information about the kind of stuff that I do, and like I said, you want some free freebies, uh, there's no obligation. I wrote all the, I wrote all the questions. I wrote all the answers. So feel free. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for yeah. sharing all the great work that you're doing, not just, not just with your patients, but also um, your writing. I mean, your, your website is brilliant. Your blogs you. are brilliant. We, I thank really you. enjoyed Great. getting ready for this podcast. And I have to admit, I love you even more now that I've gotten to know you. But even before <laughs> we started the podcast, I was really, really um, appreciative and grateful for all of the really great stuff you're putting out into the world so that we can learn more about ourselves and our diseases and our and our and our our, our opportunities to heal. So thank you so much for the great thank you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to our tick boot camp interview with our guest, Dr. Susan Trackman. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Susan Trackman, visit her website at susantrackmanmd.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of your Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com forward slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you as always for listening. And if you would like to find my webinar on how I cured my own Lyme disease, you can find that at limesupport.com forward slash heal.